Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Today's episode is Fixed Income, a Slow Road, Low Yields, and is for institutional and professional investors. I'm John O'Shea, a client advisor in our institutional asset management. And with me today is Michael Fazer, a portfolio manager in our multi-asset solutions group, and Jonathan Griggs, director of applied research for our global fixed income currency and commodities group, both within J.P. Morgan Asset Management. We'll be discussing the paper today, which presents the team's assumptions for fixed income returns. We foresee an extremely slow path of rate normalization that will end with the G4 10-year bond yields at or just below national nominal GDP. Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence. Thank you for having us. Thanks, John. Very much looking forward to it. All right, Michael, let's start with a brief overview. Can you give us just some of your basic numbers? What are your equilibrium yield and return assumptions for the G4 bond markets? Yeah, and probably the best way, I think, to look at that is probably looking at the 10-year points for yields. You know, uh, as a simple reference, it's not quite the broad bond market as a whole. For the U.S., we're looking at yield levels of around 3.5% in equilibrium. In the Eurozone, it's more a 3% figure. And if we talk Eurozone, we really think about France as a reference point. Of there are many different issues out there, but France is kind of the reference point for us here. And in Japan, we're looking at a one and a quarter figure. And finally, for the U.K., a 3% yield. Now, if you look at the return side, the issue is you know, quite simply one where these yields are all very much above current yield levels, so our returns are falling somewhat short of these equilibrium yields. And so just in the same order, you might think of the U.S. at a 275 return, the euro area 1.5%, Japan half a percent, and finally the U.K. 1.75%. You make a connection in your piece, which listeners can go to our website and review, but you make a connection there between the rank order of real GDP growth across the developed economies and the rank order of short rates. Mm -hmm. There's that much connection. There's there's certainly some. I mean, I'd say it's not the only point, but it's certainly one of the key ingredients here. You know, the first thing we look at up certainly is what is a long-run inflation target Mm -hmm. and what central policy, uh, central bank policy tries to achieve here over time. But then if you look at the real yield that you may have on the short-term interest rate side, that certainly is influenced by the level of growth that's achievable by the economy itself. And so you have that kind of rank ordering linkage without it being a straight pass through in a kind of direct numerical form. And as you point out, quoting you from the paper, it's hard to see projected bond returns rising meaningfully above cash returns. And that is really an issue that still exists because the starting yields at the longer end are still low. I mean, not as low as they used to be, Mm. quite frankly, in the US. Yeah, we already have moved tangibly upwards, but it's still a drag on future returns. So Jonathan, Michael mentions policymakers. As you see them approaching balance sheet normalization, as this unusual period of monetary policy comes to an end, how do you see that taking shape right now? Well, I think at the moment, you've got to assume that this is going to be a cautious process. I think we've already seen that very much with how the US Federal Reserve has conducted this process. And I think we're seeing it also with the transition of language 
and the sort of forward vision that the ECB and the Bank of Japan are giving as well. And I guess the reality is that having gone through such an unusual period and having had volatility at the epicentre of that in the initial phases of the financial crisis, then the last thing policymakers want to do going forward is to create new volatility associated with overtly aggressive balance sheet normalisation. And the reality is that the growth and inflation environment and the global growth environment is such that actually this allows them to be cautious. There's absolutely no pressure on them to be sort of aggressive in their actions at all at this juncture. With that, Michael, as I talk to institutions, there is much talk of death by duration in a rising rate environment. For the long-term investor, though, isn't it that time can heal all wounds? This is part of our long-term capital market return assumption view, right? Or am I wrong? Yeah, I mean, I think all wounds is maybe a bit of a lot, so to speak, but it's certainly not as dire an outlook as you might think if you only look at towards the near term. And the reason for that is really, I think, as Johnson just mentioned, you know, central banks actually have time. And one of the reasons why they have time actually is because inflation is not a big problem. So even our longer-term rates that we expect to occur after this adjustment period are not that much higher than the prevailing ones. And I think that is really an important context here. As long as we think that this rate environment is informed by a relatively stable inflation environment, we don't have that severe mark-to-market losses to expect on bond returns. And the timing thereof actually is not so certain because if market yields are only just very gradually over time and you are not invested, you obviously lose out on the carry Mm. during that period. So overall, I'd say, yes, it's still likely that the nearer part of our longer-term forecast horizon will have relatively inferior returns for bonds than our average and the latter part, somewhat higher ones. Mm-hmm. But it's not the case that you know, we think this is a big bear market in bonds and absolute return losses. Jonathan, barring that, remind us how the bond markets transition at the end of a cycle. Is it with a whimper or a bang, typically? Well, I mean, I think the key thing to highlight here, John, from the outset is that, I mean, ultimately, every economic cycle and every policy cycle is different and obviously the temptation is always just to look back at previous cycles and to sort of somehow use that analysis as a sort of a blueprint for the future and I think with the LTCMAs in particular we try and avoid doing that because obviously this is a very medium and long-term perspective on cycles anyway and also it's a recognition that every cycle is different in the sense that the causes of it vary and the underlying environment can subsequently be very different. And I think this one, more than anything, is very different because of the state of the global economy in terms of the degree of globalization. And, you know, something very important that Michael has raised there, actually, is the inflation cycle, and we'll come back onto that in a minute. And so the temptation is to say, look, you know, central banks are moving into restraint, balance sheets are going through a process of normalization, Yields are starting to rise at the front end, and obviously we've gone through periods of more aggressive rises recently in the very front end of the US curve, and that therefore we'll end up with a bang scenario and a very significant bear market in bonds. We're not predicting that because ultimately we think that inflation really is the key driver of any policy response and valuations in the bond market. And ultimately, we believe that central banks have been successful in restraining inflation expectations meeting their inflation objectives, the markets respect that. 
And that actually the reality is that we're in a global world. In the old days, we could just talk about developed markets, do a lot of analysis on spare capacity in developed markets, map that to inflation and wages. Nowadays, you have to expand that into the emerging markets because otherwise you're leaving a huge part of the world out of the analytics. And there is arguably a very large stock of spare capacity still, you know, in terms of labour markets and everything in emerging markets, which are also a restraining force on inflation. So therefore, if inflation expectations are reasonably steady through this process, you know, spare capacity is eroded only very gradually, then yes, you know, bond yields will rise, yield curves will normalise a little bit, but the degree to which that normalisation process becomes a bang is probably quite limited. And so it'll probably be more of a whimper, I guess, that would be my view. You know, we can't be too blasé in our expectations there, but I think what we've embodied into the LTCMAs is a gradual but steady but limited rise in bond yields, more in line with the sort of whimper scenario, I guess. All right, whimper is fine. In our view of the fixed income world, in our long-term view, we see credit as a relative bright spot. Despite the compressed levels of credit spreads that exist, what's our thinking here? I think ultimately that the performance of credit markets through this cycle will be a function of perceptions of growth and the risks around that, perceptions of volatility associated with policy response in the underlying environment. Because obviously both of those two things there affect obviously perceptions of corporate fundamentals. And then there is the issue of valuation. And there, yes, you know, spreads are narrow. I think probably after the sell-off so far this year, we've come off the low points post the great financial crisis. But we're still obviously above the very low points that we got to before the financial crisis. We're not too far off now. What we think is our sort of long-term expectation for equilibrium yields for IG credit at around 150 basis points, say, in the triple B sector of the market. And so unless we are convicted that we're going to see a prolonged bout of volatility in the markets, or we really think the valuations are overstretched, which we don't, or we think the environment is going to lead to a significant increase in default risks and negative perceptions of corporates, then we think actually the underlying environment for corporate credit still remains robust. And so over the sort of longer term cycles that we're looking at, we still see a significant potential for IG corporate credit to yield decent returns for investors. Fair enough. So let's go below IG. Michael, our assumptions for high yield incorporate wider spreads, which is going to drag returns. How could this play out from where we are now? Well, we don't actually have the crystal ball how every cycle works out, but if you look back in the past of how cycles tend to shape up, particularly the credit spread cycles, you do find that they actually tend to reach their tightest level sometime in the early tightening phase of central bank policy. So in an environment where the economy is still doing well, default rates are below average, and, and yields on risk-free assets or treasuries in particular rising. That's usually when you have the most material compression of relative interest rate differentials. And that's what you see also in high yield in the recent past that we have probably gotten to this kind of point or close to that point when we, I think, at that relative nadir in spreads. Mm-hmm. And things will widen from there on out, typically into a weak environment as defaults step up. Now, the important part to keep in mind is that as an investor, you actually do not earn the gross spread. You actually earn the spread adjusted for defaults. So we are in an environment today where we still believe that you can probably make an average access return on high yield despite the lower spreads, given that defaults and losses are lowered still. 
But as the, the cycle matures, you will see some wider levels happening, and most of that will be needed to compensate for higher losses at that time. But as Jonathan mentioned before, I think credit cycle itself doesn't look like one that is heavily geared to a strong leverage and undue balance sheet stretching by corporates. So we don't expect that the long-term relationships between losses from defaults throughout the cycle and yields will be fundamentally changed. And quite the contrary, quality and high yield actually is a bit higher than it used to be. There are a lot more mm-hmm. double B companies in the index too. So at the margin, one might be a little more optimistic about the sustainability of the default rates going forward. And that should translate into decent outperformance. When we put out these 10 to 15-year thoughts in the late fall, it was hard to foresee a couple of things that have happened, such as the new tax law and, dare to say, a more robust economy. Has either of those changed our thinking on our path for high yield? The tax law itself, if anything, it does make debt up from a certain degree onwards less attractive. So Mm -hmm. I think it has a marginally favorable impact based on our current estimates on the average quality of the high yield market Mm -hmm. because people will just not necessarily be quite so inclined to leverage up quite so highly given the lack of tax benefits or the drag actually from tax treatment going forward. On the economy side, I think it's a bit of a two-sided exercise here. One is, yes, it should, you know, the tax law changes and the stimulus should help the economy here, but there's also risk of maybe having a more significant overheating and then a more significant deceleration of growth in the downturn than you would otherwise had. And I think it's a little too early to tell whether the positive impact of a stronger economy just keep us growing for longer at a somewhat more robust pace or that we just amplified the short-term peak in exchange for a more severe downturn and then just have a more volatile pass to generate returns. Okay. So, Jonathan, suddenly LIBOR feels like a lion, especially with the recency of the past several years in mind. With its current yield, how much of a competitor for capital is it likely to become for the rest of the fixed income markets? Well, this is interesting, actually. This is something we've been discussing a lot recently in our fixed income process, because obviously with short-term rates rising, it does change the environment a bit in the sense that when you have periods of risk aversion in the market, there is something with a higher yield and less volatility that is available to investors. And so I think the mere fact that LIBOR in the US, and this is really only a US story, really, in terms of actual significant movements, has moved nearly two percentage points now from the low point of the cycle is a significant short-term development. But I guess the key issue here is the trajectory going forward, whether you extrapolate the pace of increase that we've had in the last six months, you know, something more aggressive relative to, say, our long-term capital market assumptions going forward because the environment has changed and whether we're seeing a similar development may be occurring in other countries, which would obviously exacerbate the problem. And I think there we're less concerned about this issue because, I mean, I think the reality is the market had become a little bit complacent around the pace of Fed normalisation up until, say, the middle part of last year. I think people are sort of bought into a flatter Fed response than even the Fed were projecting in their dots. Um, But I think what you've seen happen is a combination of the tax policy 
announcements, also the sort of improved economic growth environment over the last six months, and then the more aggressive language from the Fed has obviously encouraged that displacement in a way of that complacency. So I think, in a sense, that's sort of given an extra bit of octane, you know, for want of a better word, into the rise in LIBOR. We wouldn't extrapolate that rate of change going forward. Obviously, we still see the Fed continuing to normalise in line with where we see sort of equilibrium yields and obviously at some point the cycle going above that. But I think really going forward, we're not in the zone where we should anticipate or be overly concerned about this sort of pace of increase continuing for one or two years and leading to, say, a a 4 or 5% LIBOR rate in a more destructive environment. So, yes, you know, it's certainly the LIBOR story has acquired more headline activity. And actually, at the margin, obviously, it does give investors somewhere to park their assets or cash when they're looking periods of risk aversion. But I think in terms of causing a major deflection away from our forecasts, we're relatively sanguine on that. And of course, the other thing to highlight is that actually in Europe and Japan, the whole process of policy normalization is barely started. I think it's a good point. If you look at what happened in LIBOR, or generally in short-term rates, we can think about it as the opportunity cost for safety is coming down. It used to be very expensive and quite a privilege, so to speak, to own cash when you got paid nothing on it and you had at the same time very high return expectations everywhere else. And clearly what we see today in environment is that despite maybe good economic data, valuations are a lot higher across a number of asset classes, so expect returns for risky assets are clearly lower while at the same time, safer assets becoming more attractive. And you see that kind of portfolio channel in reverse action actually happening today and put investors that might have been pushed out on the risk curve relative to their natural state of comfort, reining that back in a bit. On the flip of where they were past few years, could you see floating rate securities increasing in attractiveness or do those get priced in fairly quickly? And that's really two things. One is that idea of, you know, do I have to take the same amount of risk that I used to generate the same return that I did? And some of that, it will help having safer securities that are LIBOR or short-term anchored on a floating rate basis, providing that opportunity to reduce exposure. Certainly on the durations as the yield curves get flatter, there is an opportunity to shorten up a bit. Where I think the other issue is a bit more uncertain and the benefit less clear is the inflationary response, because as we discussed earlier on in this conversation, that our inflationary outlook is not that strong. So in that sense, the incremental benefit that you might generate from being in a floating space relative to that surprise risk might not be as valuable as it used to be in the past when inflation itself was a bit more volatile. And the final aspect I think that is still out there is a bit of the technicals in the market. So depending on what floating rate instrument you look at, you know, if you look at loans, for example, it depends a little bit on the credit quality and mm-hmm. the terms. Mm-hmm. There tends to be a bit of a benefit if the credit markets are not too ebullient so that you don't get some of the perceived high yield that comes from higher short-term rate being taken away by having tighter spreads on the flip side and then your total return will not change that much. In that context, I think the recent volatility actually is a marginally good thing to allow floating rate investors to stay a little bit more ahead than they might otherwise. Jonathan, you mentioned earlier emerging markets, and we see an improving outlook for emerging market debt in our forward-looking thoughts, and it's reflecting better economic fundamentals and cyclical support. How does this translate into return estimates for emerging market sovereign and corporate debt? You know, we talked earlier about credit investment grade being a good spot But I think also, obviously, EM 
remains a good spot from our point of view in fixed income because, as you've highlighted there, strong growth, good governance, good policy, and obviously a continuation of this sort of convergence, I guess, of living standards and, for want of a better word, the quality of economic growth in the EM block relative to DM is an ongoing long-term process that we expect to continue. And obviously a huge amount of this is China-driven. You know, China ultimately, when you think about it, probably is at least 40 to 50% of the delta, I guess, in EM space. And how does that translate? Well, I mean, obviously against that environment, then it means perceptions of the quality of debt, the risk of default, the risk of sort of volatile reactions to significant policy developments of an adverse nature, in the bigger EM countries is limited in that environment. We don't think we're in an environment of the sort of 70s, 80s and 90s where you quite regularly had upsets emanating from larger countries in the EM space. So as long as you subscribe to the view that this convergence trade continues in EM, that the epicenter of it, which is really China, can manage itself through this process you know, in terms of transitioning the sources of growth managing the sort of leverage cycle that's inherent in that. And we think that this block will remain stable. And hence, therefore, if you're being paid a decent return and default risks are low, then we think ultimately the return for investors will remain attractive. And the risks, obviously, there will be episodes of volatility like there will be in all markets over certain parts of the cycle going forward over the next 10 or 15 years. But I think through the long haul, we still expect that sector, both sovereigns and corporates, hard currency and in local currency terms as well to perform well against a sort of a typical DM government bond index. So let me change it up just a little bit, Michael. How do you think the effects of regulation and aging populations will manifest themselves in ultra-long dated yields? I mean, the interesting part of that aging population issue, actually, it is a fairly global one. So we actually not only seeing that in mm. the you know, play out in the U.S. market, but in other markets. And so we can look a little bit across the globe and say where you know different regulatory regimes have been already in place for longer, particularly the liability matching or incentives for corporations to more adequately offset their duration of the liabilities. We certainly have seen in those markets that curves have generally been flatter, particular at the very long end, so from 10 years out to, to 30 plus years. And we do think that that is a trend that will continue to persist. So whatever you might have seen in the past, you might have thought of you know, a 50 basis point or 75 basis points interest rate differential between 10 and 30 years. We don't think that will come back. We expect this to be substantially flatter, more to the tone of you know, 0 to 25 basis points. And that's going to be with us for quite some time. So even within the LTMAs, there are time horizons that might be beyond that. This would be one of those where we don't necessarily even expect to see the full extreme of that effect, even by the end of our horizon. It may still be a, a tightening vice, so to speak, on that kind of premium and the need to actually acquire duration more and more, particularly with the recent chain regulation for this year, where pension contributions are being made more attractive. Everything else being equal with more contribution comes a higher funding ratio. Higher funding ratio usually suggests that you probably ought to de-risk your portfolio sum acquire a bit more duration and overall improve your balance sheet earnings volatility mm-hmm. thereon, or even unload some of the risks to an insurer. So both variations could happen net-net. They will be a fable for demand for duration, our long duration assets, and with that exert compressing influence on the yield spreads between 10 and 30 bonds. So you live in a team that looks across geographies, cross-asset classes, 
how well have the traditional correlation levels between equities and fixed income been holding up? Yeah, I mean, I think there certainly has been a two or three different things that we need to look at here from a time horizon. There has yep. been the mm-hmm. secular trend that you had from the 80s where you saw bond yields, if you just owned them long enough, being lower with every cycle. And so this trend, I think, this big disinflationary trend, we think has come to an end. So we don't think we are going to revisit that. And so the ability of our bond markets to sustain gains of a larger nature, even during significant equity expansions, we think is not there anymore. We think it's going to be more of a cyclical dynamic. And then you come back to the bit of the interaction between what used to be called the Greenspan put and the Bernanke and most latest the Yellen put. We think that's still in place, but untested with a new Fed regime. So we'll have to see how effective that put is. But it's certainly clear that in a healthy environment as we are today and healthy in terms of broader corporate profits, economic growth prospects and unemployment, the put is further out of the money, which means the central bank will not respond as quickly to smaller gyrations in equity markets, but we'll be happy to continue with their policy. And I think that's what we have seen uh, as of late, while in prior equity market weakness, even things that only appeared to be a correction, there was still an assessment that monetary stimulus might still be needed and have to step in or step up. At the times, we feel we have left that stage of the cycle and of assessment. We are now in an environment where the Fed will need a lot more conviction in a more broader deterioration to deviate from its path of normalizing interest rates from current levels. And so you have, in that sense, less negative correlations. The Concord bond hedge does not work quite so well in this environment. But it's not to suggest that it's gone. It's just, as I think about it, in a put or options language further out of the money, and it mm-hmm. would need just a more significant deterioration of economic conditions to uh, be reenacted. And we right now do not see that as being the most likely path of the economic development in the next few years. Well, Jonathan and Michael, I want to thank you both for joining us on the Center for Investment Excellence. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. Darling in from London. Glad to have you. Thank you for joining us today on J.P. Morgan's Center for Investment Excellence. CFA Institute members are encouraged to self-document their continuing professional development activities in their online CE tracker. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes and on our website. Recorded on April 4, 2018. For the purposes of MIFID II, the JPM Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs are marketing communications and are not in scope for any MIFID II and MIFIR requirements specifically related to investment research. Furthermore, the J.P. Morgan Asset Management Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs, as non-independent research, have not been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research, nor are they subject to any prohibition on dealing ahead of the dissemination of investment research. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production.
This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield are not a reliable indicator of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL. In Hong Kong, by JF Asset Management Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In Singapore, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, co-reg number 197601586K, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited, co-reg number 201120355E. In Taiwan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited. In Japan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type II Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, Registration Number, Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, Number 330. In Korea, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Korea Company Limited. In Australia, to wholesale clients only, as defined in Sections 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Australia Limited, ABN 551-438-32080, AFSL 376919. In Brazil, by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A., in Canada, for institutional clients' use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada, Incorporated, And in the United States, by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services, Incorporated, And J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated, Both members of FINRA, SIPC. And J.P. Morgan Investment Management, Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2018, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved.